Great. Good evening. Thanks to the few people that responded. That's nice. Thank you. Um, so we have started a series called Foundations. Um, we started it last week, and we're going to be running it right through until Easter, which is really exciting. Um, so and I guess in some ways what we're going to be doing tonight and every week is a bit of excavation work, which is nice. It's a nice word, isn't it? We're going to be digging down to the roots of what we believe, looking at our foundations. And maybe for some of us, it'll be for the first time. And we'll be thinking, what is it that I actually believe? Do I believe anything of this? Or some of us will be digging down for the first time in a while, and we'll be thinking, what have I maybe forgotten about that I haven't really thought about that much since I've become a Christian? Or maybe some things have got a little bit skewed in my time as a Christian, and I want to just reflect on what I believe and why I believe it. So that's what we're doing tonight. So a little bit about me. Um, I am an old man trapped in a 29-year-old's body. But I've come to embrace that. I'm happy with the fact that I am now. I'd be happy to sit in on a Friday night with like a um, bowl of water in my feet and a cup of tea and reading a book or something. And um, I have Mondays off, and one of my favorite things to do on a Monday is to go into the garden and pick out weeds and plant vegetables. Seriously, it is, yeah. Um, if, any, if you've not talked to me for more than five minutes, you'll know that that is actually what I do on a Monday. For lots of people, they would, on the January sales, they would go and buy reduced clothes. I bought a greenhouse. It was a great deal. It was a good greenhouse. I started building it. It's very exciting. Um, so the reason why I'm talking about that is because, actually, this really appeals to my gardening sensibilities as we think about foundations. Because um, you can't just, when you're gardening, throw a bunch of seeds around and um, hope for the best. It's not really going to work. You might very, very, be very lucky and get one thing grow. But actually, the preparatory work, working with the foundations, working with the soil, making sure it's good, pulling out the, the roots of the weeds, um, is so important in ensuring that things grow. And that's what we want to do. That's what we want to spend some time doing tonight. And the question I'm asking, and the question we're exploring together is, do we really know Jesus? Do we really know Jesus? And of course, for lots of us, we would rightly say yes. For some of us, maybe that's something we're exploring. But for all of us, I think there's an invitation tonight for us to get a bigger picture of who Jesus is. And we can so easily, I think, um, have an idea of who Jesus is and know some of the details, know some of the small parts, so know some of the facts maybe, but actually miss the full picture. And I think we need the full picture. I think we need the full picture more than ever. Um, we talk about this most Sundays, about the fact that this isn't really a stable time for us glo globally. There's so much uncertainty around us. And knowing who Jesus is is so important for that. And I think actually, in fact, in amongst all of that, there's a real opportunity for us to go deeper in who Jesus is and to strengthen our foundations in him in a time where the things that we've put our hope in seem to be falling apart. There's a chance for us to really go deep with him and trust in him more fully. So the passage we're going to look at tonight to explore this theme is got to be one of my favorites in the Bible, actually. It's in a letter called Colossians, which is in the second half. We'll be looking from chapter 1, if you want to start getting it out, in verse 15 through 29. And it comes from a letter that's written to a group of Christians who were kind of doing the same thing that we're going to be doing tonight. They were, they were early in the life of the church. Um, it's probably just 10, 20 years after Jesus had died and rose again. And um, they were just exploring what the foundations of faith were, like why they believe what they believe. And in amongst that, this was written. And so as, as I read this out, I'd love it if we could just be thinking, who is this Jesus that we're reading about? So reading from Colossians 1, chapter, chapter 1, from verse 15. 
should be on the screen as well, I think. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you to Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move, move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you've heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So this is quite an incredible passage, isn't it? It's so full of truth. And I think just in a few sentences, it lays out this, this beautiful picture of who Jesus is. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to walk through each of these points. I think there are seven key things that happen in the course of these verses, uh, which we'll look at together. Um, it's kind of maybe seven sermons in one. So we'll rush through each of those points, but hopefully just pull out something from each, which gives us a bigger picture of who Jesus is. So we're ready for the challenge? Seven sermons in one? Yeah, good. Cool. Okay, let's do it. So starting in verse 15. We're looking at the first part, which is the very, very first words, which are, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Anyone know what that means? Yeah, so what I think, it's a huge claim, but it's not particularly easy for us to unpack, is it? What it suggests is that before Jesus, no one really knew what God looked like. He was invisible, distant, and kind of known in glimpses through specific circumstances and stories. In Jesus, God is revealed. He is made fully known, not just temporarily, but from now on. So when we look at Jesus, we get a full picture of what God's character looks like. And I think it's so important for us to get our heads around this because it'd be so easy for us to think that Jesus just fills in the blanks. So, so for example, so if we take this Bible and we were to read it like any other book, the logical thing we'd do would be we'd start at page one and the first story and then go to the next page in the next story. And as we go through it from the start through to the end, we'd build a picture kind of chronologically from start through finished. But what would happen if we did that is we'd get halfway through, and at that point, we'd reach Jesus. And we'd kind of probably have started based on some assumptions as we'd be kind of figuring some things out to have quite a full picture and be then trying to squeeze Jesus into the gaps in the middle. You know? And what this passage says it's pretty revolutionary. What it says is Jesus doesn't just fill in the missing pieces. Jesus is the picture. Jesus is the image of God revealed. He shows us who God is. And through Jesus, we make sense of the story of the rest of the Bible. Through Jesus, we get to know God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus shows us what God looks like. And in fact, what we find is that with Jesus as our lens, as we look at the rest of this book, with Jesus as our lens, it all holds together beautifully. But we start with Jesus. So what does that mean for us? Well, firstly, as I just said, I think it changes the way we read scripture. And secondly, I think it actually changes the way we think about God. 
Because whether we know it or not, subconsciously, I think for lots of us, I think we carry some assumptions about what we think God is like. Maybe for some of us, we actually project some of our own personality onto God. We wouldn't necessarily say that out loud. But so I'll give you some examples. God must be like this because it, he's a better version of me. You know, God loves just a bit better than I do. Or equally, God can't be like this because I, I'm not like that. So he couldn't be like that. Do you know? That's, it can be very easy for us to logically come to those kind of conclusions. Or let, let me put it more personally. And I think this is where it can start to get dangerous. We can start to think, God can't love me because I struggle to love other people. Or we could say something like this. God isn't proud of me because I haven't been a success. Or God couldn't forgive me because I find it hard to forgive that person who did that. Do you see how easily we can make those kinds of assumptions? And we do that particularly if we feel like it's our job to build a picture of who God is. As if it's on our shoulders, if it's our responsibility to put together this big jigsaw puzzle, which is the picture and character of God. As if it's all on us to get it right. But the reality is, if it was entirely on us, we would get it wrong. Um, and thankfully, what this passage says is that in Jesus, God is fully revealed. When you read about Jesus, there's no hidden part left out. There's no puzzle building required. There's no guesswork required. Jesus' incredible, self-giving, selfless love is the love of God. There's no change to that. There's no conditions. Jesus carries our failures completely and still calls us children of God. No conditions. Jesus forgives us completely and fully, and so God forgives us completely and fully. We see the full picture of God in Jesus and the way that he lived and the way that he died, the way that he rose from the dead. And so if Jesus is the full picture of God, I think maybe for some of us, we need to start with a fresh canvas, a, a fresh piece of paper, and allow Jesus to be the one that fills the space, rather than our assumptions, rather than our experiences, to begin with the truth of who Jesus is, and allow that to form our understanding of who God is. That's one verse. Next verse. <laughs> Jesus is our creator, verse 16. And that's what it says in that verse. And when it says, when the Psalms talk about us being knitted together in our mother's wombs, Jesus is the one with the crochet set. Thanks for the murmured laughter. <laughs> it was a terrible joke, I know. And I actually don't know whether crochet set is the right thing. I know I said I was old, but I don't quite knit my own socks yet. And when we look at landscape around us, this, this passage makes it clear that everything is through Jesus and for Jesus. When we look at the smallest insect or the largest, vast, the vastness of stars, all of it comes through Jesus and for Jesus. He precedes everything and is the origins of everything. It's all his. And what we need to get our heads around is that was hugely controversial at the time it was written. Um, Jesus was living in, and, and the writer Paul was living in a time where um, the Christians were kind of ruled by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire decreed that anyone could follow and worship whatever God they liked, so long as they also worshipped Caesar. They also worshipped the emperor and called him God. They had to also declare that the emperor, that Caesar, was also someone from whom all things came. And this passage says, quite true and quite rightly, that's not the case. Jesus is the one through whom and for whom everything is made. 
And I think you could say, well, yes, that's clear. That's kind of obvious. But I think, actually, it's just as controversial for us today. We can just as easily come to this passage and, and actually be challenged by it as a culture. Deeply rooted in our culture is the idea that really everything is for us and through us. Everything is for us and by us. And you know what? Actually, consumerism just feeds into that, doesn't it? Like every, I get whatever I need, whatever I want, and I don't really think about the consequences of it. You know, you know, that's kind of like the end goal of consumerism. It's all about what we want and what we need. And everything else comes secondary to that. So if the world is our creation, if it's all for us and by us, then we can do whatever we want with it, can't we? There's no consequences to that. Who cares about climate change? And we see whole governments making that kind of stance, can't we? Or who cares about homelessness or recycling or the food industry? And I think for lots of us, we're actually starting to wake up to some of the damage that we've caused this world because of that pervasive mindset. Um, but actually, I still think that even within that, there's a kind of a, a passiveness to it where we're totally permission not to do anything about it. You know, like as long as you retweet that tweet, then you're fine. <laughs> and so when we come to a passage like this, which says that Jesus is the creator and origins of everything, that everything is through him and by him and for him, and if we really believe that, then this world isn't ours to treat as we wish. It's not ours to do with as we please. This world is his, and we're given the incredible privilege and responsibility of looking after it well. I could easily just go down into like a social action sermon for the next 20 minutes, but I'm going to like pin it there. And I, what I want to talk about is ownership. If we truly believe that this world belongs to Jesus, we honor and worship Jesus by the way we treat it by the way we care for the world and its people. As we admire its beauty, we worship Jesus. And ultimately, as we stand against its abuse, we honor and worship Jesus. So that's point two, Jesus is creator, and that has an impact on the way we see the world. Number three, we're looking at verse 17 now. Jesus is our sustainer. So God doesn't just press the start button on our world and then leave it to go, which is actually a popular opinion in quite a lot of Greek philosophy. For anyone who wants to, there's a geek fact for you. He sustains us and, and all of creation and holds it together. And this verse makes the claim that life comes from and depends on Jesus. More than that, he's the origins and foundations of everything that is good and true. Now, if, if you're scientifically wired, you might be thinking right now, well, actually, I know that um, my lungs breathe because there's an electrical impulse that goes on in my brain, which triggers my lungs to breathe, and the same with my heart. And I know that this actually that this, the Earth revolves around the sun because of the gravitational pull of the sun, and likely because of the the core of the Earth that causes it to spin, all that kind of stuff. You know, um, we can easily say that I know these things that happen are phys aren't physically done by Jesus because I can answer those questions as to how they work through science, can't we? And that is often an argument that's made. And while this is all true, what we read here is that the mechanisms which underpin all of reality, everything, which covers everything, all the life that we know and life we experience, flows from Jesus. He is our sustainer. And we have to be able to hold both of those things as true. And I think here's how we do it. Where science explains how something works, Jesus explains who makes it work. Where science explains how, this passage explains that it's Jesus who makes it work. Jesus holds our planet in motion. 
Jesus keeps our hearts beating. Jesus gives us the very breath in our lungs. It's all him. It's everything. It always has been. It always will be. And I think we just need to, to pause and acknowledge that. Even as we breathe right this second, Jesus is sustaining us. Jesus is giving us strength. Points four and five we're going to do together. So verse 18, Jesus is the head of the church and firstborn among the dead. And that second half sounds a bit like a zombie film, but don't worry about that. We'll come back to it. Um, Jesus, so first of all, Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus leads the church. Our boss is Jesus. It's not Carl. It's not the elders. It's not the staff team. Um, I get some great line managements in the prayer room. Ha, ha, ha. A couple of us, it's good. But seriously, Jesus is the leads of people that God has chosen to bring his kingdom here on earth. We are the people who, with Jesus at the head, bring about the will of God for all of creation. If he is the head, we are the body. We get to be Jesus' living and breathing representatives on earth. And the same Jesus who we've just been talking about, who's the image of God, who creates us, who sustains us, that Jesus is the Jesus we get to represent, which is incredible. It's such a privilege. And even more, the second half, while Jesus leads this church globally and this church as in these people in the present moment, he also draws us towards our purpose, towards our destiny. And that's what Firstborn Among the Dead talks about. It's saying that Jesus has won. It points to the resurrection, as we just were singing about actually, that he's beaten death and we have that same future too. And so we have a present calling to be his image bearers and a future drawing towards an eternal purpose in him. Um, I'm going to do a really tenuous analogy to help explain some of this, so go with me. Um, I have an iPhone. Here we go. Probably lots of us have iPhones. Um, it's not a new iPhone. It's a bit scratched. It's a bit bumped up. The battery's not working very well. It's about two months old. <laughs> it's not, actually. It's about two years old. But that, that was a, a dig at Apple. <laughs> um, this phone still essentially works as it should. And actually, I function through this phone, really, if I'm honest. Um, I do lots of daily tasks through it. I relate to people through it. I do lots of work through it. In a lot of ways, this is my technological body, which that's a pretty horrible thing to say, isn't it? I could go into that. I'm not going to. Um, so this is my technological body. This is the way that I function. Now, let's imagine Apple announces another kind of keynote speech. Everyone gets really excited. Tim Cook comes onto the stage, and he says, I've got an iPhone unlike any iPhone you've seen. And you're like, I've heard that before. So, and he says, this is the last iPhone we're ever going to release. It's the perfect iPhone, the iPhone Z. <laughs> you're never going to need to replace this one. The battery's going to last forever. It's going to meet any need that you'll ever have, even the needs you don't need, know that you need right now. It's going to perfectly function as your body as your technological body. So, what am I talking about? Why this 10 years link? So here's the thing, Jesus has chosen to work in us as his church. And he's working in us and helping us to become more and more like him. But we're still broken, we're still scratched, we still mess up, we don't get things right. And we choose to go our own way so often, don't we? Sometimes we just turn off when Jesus is in the middle of doing something in us. Like, you know, when you're in the middle of a text and 20% battery and it just cuts out for no reason. It must be so annoying. I imagine that happens all the time. Jesus is just like, okay, I'm going to do this for you. And you're like, oh, Netflix, I'll turn that on. <laughs> do you know? But he still, in amongst that, chooses to be 
to let us be his representatives, which is incredible, and to be known through us, which is such a privilege, isn't it? And more than that, as we're doing that, he gives us more and more glimpses of what it will look like for us to do that eternally with him, to do that knowing what he looks like, knowing his perfection and knowing that he's drawing us towards that. We are Jesus' body on earth, and through him, we get this incredible glimpse into the future. So then point six, Jesus is our savior. We're looking at verses in 20 and 21. And looking at those verses, it says, making peace with his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, but now he has reconciled you. And we are a culture of superheroes and saviors, aren't we? But it's all for the big screen. It's all fiction. Um, it's all for when the world is about to die because of an autonomous robot or a, a kind of Norse god with long black hair or something. We can get our heads around that, but that's what they're for. That's what saving is for. That's the realm of saving and not, nothing else really. And what we find here throughout the Bible and in this passage is that we are as just and desperate in need of a savior. And that's not popular to claim. We don't like to think that we need help. And, and actually, independence, being self-made, is something we really glorify in this culture, isn't it? In this city especially, which is all about the self-made leader. We don't like to think that we need help. But the reality is that our lives and our actions and our thoughts, the way that we relate to this world, as we've been thinking about, and the way that we relate to God, has been knocked off its axis for as long, nearly as long as humanity has existed. And that's not something we could ever fix on our own. We need a savior, someone who could live for us and model all that humanity could and should be. We need someone to represent us when we couldn't represent ourselves. We need someone when we haven't lived or acted in the way that we knew was right. And Jesus has covered all of that. It's done, it's completed, it's finished when he died on the cross. And he offers a way of life that lets us live, benefiting from everything that he has done. It's amazing. We get to live with peace, a deep sense of contentment, and, and he's beginning to heal us as we do that. Jesus is the savior we need. And then finally, the seventh point is, verses 23, 22, is this word reconciler. Jesus is our reconciler. Through Jesus, uh, let's read that a little bit. Through Jesus, who is pleased to reconcile to himself all things. And then skipping ahead, now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body. So what does that word mean? And it, it means to bring restoration, and usually it's to, to do with relationships, but to return to order all things as they and we relate to God. So through Jesus, all of this world is being restored into its proper place, becoming again creation which fulfills its design purpose in worshiping God. It's, there's like a, a picture that there's a pastor called Tim Keller who says that if, if creation was like a big grandfather clock, when and with all the, clock, the kind of cogs that fit together in pieces, that when, when humanity chose to live its own way and not for, for its created purpose, it was like taking a cog out of the middle of the grandfather clock, and then it stopped everything else from functioning. That humanity falling, humanity, us living our own way, affected more than just us, it impacted this whole world. And in the same way, this passage is saying that as we begin to be restored, as we are brought into relationship with God, it impacts more than just us. It actually is restored to the whole world. And that's what Jesus came to do, to bring restoration, reconciliation for everything. So what do we do with all this? 
Jesus reconciles us into relationship with God. And this same Jesus is the Jesus who's a full image of God, who creates us, who sustains us, the Jesus who leads us and gives us a glimpse, a glimpse into our future, the Jesus who saves us and brings into relationship with God. The question I just want to ask is, do, do we really know him? Do we know him like that? Because what we can't do with a passage like this is we can't sit on the fence with it. This is Jesus. We have to take it seriously. We have to take him seriously. And when we do, it impacts everything. It impacts the way we live our lives, the way that we look at this world, the way we look at this building and the people that are gathered in it. It impacts the way we look at our past and our future, the way we look at our work, our friendships, our uni, our school life. It impacts everything. Jesus underpins, sustains, and grinds everything for us. And when I start to really think about that, it stirs up such a deep sense of hope in me. I haven't really grasped every element of it. And in fact, I think it's a lifelong pursuit for me, and it should be for all of us. Because in those moments of clarity, when I actually realize, this is the Jesus that I know. This is the Jesus that I get to have a relationship with. It fills up me up with hope in a way that I could never find anywhere else. And it grinds me and it gives me identity and security in a way that I'd never find elsewhere. This should be a pursuit that we have for our whole lives. This is the way that we find hope. Henry Nouwen is a kind of Christian writer, and he says this, the quote will come up as well, hope makes it possible to look beyond the fulfillment of urgent wishes and pressing desires and offers a vision beyond human suffering and even death. Read from Shawshank Redemption says this, let me tell you something, my friend. <laughs> hope is a dangerous thing. Hope will drive a man insane. <laughs> I can do parties if anyone wants Morgan Freeman's first. <laughs> Hope is a powerful thing. Hope has the power to do incredible good, giving a people a why to their existence, which helps them to live through the most horrible of circumstances. But equally, if we put our hope into the wrong thing, it can be just as devastating. There's a psychiatrist called Viktor Frankl who said that what he survived the Holocaust, and he writes about some of his experiences, and he said that he watched a man who he was in prison with who had hope that he would get out of prison on a specific date. He was convinced March 13th he's going to get out of prison and he put all of his hope into that reality and the date got closer the date came the date passed and he wasn't released um, and Victor said the shift was huge from being someone filled with hope to someone who just started to deteriorate and actually died while he was still in prison we need a why we need hope but it must be in the right thing. It's got to be in Jesus, nothing else. So do we really know him? As I was preparing, I got the sense that for some of us, we know that we live a life of Jesus and something else. We put our hope in Jesus and in something else, whether that be a career, whether that be in a relationship, whether that be our image in social media, whether that be success. And I think there are lots of reasons for us doing that. It's easy for us to slip into the habits of the culture around us, which suggests that we should hedge our bets because something is probably not going to work. 
And so if we have our hope in lots of different little things, then if one of those things drops, then it's fine. We've got like five other things that we can kind of keep hoping in and keep juggling and hoping that things will work out. And some, in certain, kind of another way of thinking about it is like bubble wrapping ourselves from this world in hopes that we never suffer or never have disappointment. But when we do that, it limits us hugely. It limits us from knowing that there's a hope in something. There's hope in someone who will never change and will never let us down. Who is big enough to carry us through the most horrible of circumstances and gives us a why which drives us and gives us purpose. And for others of us, I think maybe tonight, he just wants to offer a bigger picture of himself. That we've become content with the image that we have, but it's just been too small. And then maybe for some of us who are exploring, um, we just need to decide to do something about this image that we're being presented with. If this is the Jesus who lived, who claims these things about himself, we kind of need to decide to do something about it. And we'd love to explore that with you if you want to do that. Why don't I pray for us? Do you want to stand with me while we do that? Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for the way that you have brought yourself close to us so that we can know you, that we can know God. Thank you for creating us, for sustaining us, for giving us purpose, for saving us, and for restoring us. God, I just pray for us tonight that we would really know that with clarity. There'd be a freshness to that where we've heard those words before. Thank you that you're here.